Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. Good morning, Wildwood. Turn your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. I want to do something a little bit different this morning. I feel compelled to ask any leader in our church to rise. Elders, staff, ministry directors, connect group leaders, triad leaders, children's small groups, youth small groups. If you're leading a ministry team, if you're on a ministry team, stand. One, I want to recognize, first of all, this is first service, and we have second service, and we have a lot of people, I, I have no doubt, watching online. Yeah, I want to recognize, that, that's first and foremost, I want to recognize what it takes to lead this church, right, and show gratitude. So whoever was wooing just a second ago, let's do that again, okay? All right. Now I want to ask you to have your spouse stand with you. If you're, if you're married, love for your spouse to stand with you. Okay, give you a second for that. I want to pray. I want to ask the Lord to bless because, you know, the enemy does not like any church that desires to be faithful. The, the enemy does not like a church that preaches the gospel. Um, I don't know how he feels about churches that, that don't, but I know he doesn't like churches that preach the gospel that try to be faithful. And we are trying to be faithful from, from nursery all the way up. We're trying to be faithful. And one of the ways that Satan is able to disrupt work is by frustrating marriages. And so I, I just feel compelled this morning to just ask the Lord to bless the marriages of those that are leading our church spiritually. Amen? I'd love for my wife to come stand next to me. All right. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for what, what you are doing in this church. Lord, I'm so grateful for the leaders that you have built up. Men and women who are, who are willing to, to lead by example, to teach the word, uh, to shepherd people. But Lord, I know that that puts a target on them, and I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would surround them and protect them and bless them and bless their home. I pray for purity for those that are married and those that are not married. I pray for purity of their hearts and their minds. I pray, Lord, that you would bless these leaders. Father, give them, in, in, in the vein of Acts 4, when you filled the church with your spirit and it caused them to be bold in the gospel, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would give us a fresh uh, vigor and vitality and zeal to proclaim the gospel and to shepherd the people that you have entrusted to our care. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please be seated. Thank you so much, leaders, for your work and your effort and for the way that you have blessed our church. Last week we left off with Romans 3, chapter, uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 20, 
where Paul says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Okay? So, is all hope lost? Is all hope lost? God's perfect justice demands that corrupt man face condemnation. Because no works of the law are going to save a person. No, no matter how good you try to be, it, it is impossible for you to make yourself righteous. And, and God's justice demands that corrupt man face condemnation. Now, his love desires to reach out to us. So the question is, how, how, how does that gap get closed? How do fallen human beings come into relationship? How do we bring our depraved selves close to the holy God? If all the works in the world, if all the good works, if all, doing the, all the right things in the world do not yield righteousness in us, then how is it possible that we can ever be righteous in God's sight? Well, folks, we're about to find out why the gospel is the gospel. Why the gospel is the good news. Amen? All right, here we go. Paul continues in verse 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, again, we come into Your presence. We want to glorify you and, and worship you and give you all the honor and praise. The gospel is the good news because despite the fact that no works could ever yield righteousness, Lord, you declare us righteous in Christ and you give us his righteousness. Lord, I pray that you would help that to sink deep into our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 21 sets up a sweet contrast with the preceding verse, verse 20. Paul, again, says, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the purpose of the law is to reveal our sin. It can't save us. The law cannot save, it only reveals our sin. But now, Paul says, but now means something has changed. Something has changed. Something is contrasted with that statement. By works of the law, or I'm sorry, uh, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now. So the law can't save, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Something is different. God has shown us that even though the law cannot save, 
there is something that can save. And, and, and I don't know your religious experience, but when I talk about the law, think morality. We're talking about God's law. We're talking about the, the, the Ten Commandments and the laws of Moses. And think about morality. So if, if doing all the right things can't save you, what can? Yes, amen. And Paul is going to tell us that. Paul is telling us that, that the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Andrew, do I need to just take your mic for now? I'm all right. All right. Verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. So what is it that manifests the righteousness of God? What is it that we're looking for? How has God worked? He says, through faith, the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It is the redemption. It's God's plan of redemption, which is made visible, which is manifest. It's displayed. It is revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. His life, death, burial, resurrection, that, that is what manifests God's righteousness. You understand that morality is an attempt to manifest God's righteousness. To manifest is to bring out, to reveal, to demonstrate. So in your effort to live a right life, to follow the law, is an effort to manifest the righteousness of God. And Paul says it's impossible. Your life will never manifest the righteousness of God. However, Jesus does. The plan of redemption what it was always about, from, from the giving of the law to Jesus on the cross and his resurrection, it was always about the plan of redemption to manifest God's righteousness. The righteous, without exception, Jew and Gentile alike, live by faith. That's what Paul said in Romans 117. You remember that? The righteous shall live by faith. They shall be saved by faith. There is no distinction, Paul says. Why is there no distinction? That would be, the distinction is incredibly important if you're a Jew. The whole point of being a Jew is that you're being part of God's set-apart people. You're distinct. And now Paul is saying, there is no distinction. And why is there no distinction? All have sinned, Paul says. All have sinned. You see, the Jews received that great advantage of receiving the oracles of God. That was a great advantage to them. Paul talked about that. We either, I, I can't remember if it was last week or the week before that. But Paul talked about how the Jews were given the great advantage of having the oracles of God come through them. The law and the prophets came to them. But what did the law and the prophets reveal? Exactly how much like everyone else, the Jews really were. How incredibly undistinct 
They really were. The law reveals that none is righteous. No, not one. All have sinned, Paul says. Sin is the violation of God's holy standard. A standard that exists to His glory. It's, it's a reflection of His glory. His holy standard reflects His holy glory. So when you sin, when you break God's law, you not only violate the standard, you not only break the rule, but you transgress against His glory. He says we fall short of the glory of God. It's an attack on His glory. When we sin, we attack the glory of God. And sadly, we all sin. I mean, I don't know how many times I need to say it. Paul felt the need to say it over and over and over again. We all sin, and we all need rescue. Rescue implies we're helpless. Rescue implies we cannot save ourselves. Rescue implies that none of us has any hope without His intervention. Right? We all need rescue. We need another way of coming to God because we are never going to make the way ourselves. That's never going to happen. Verse 24 and 25. Paul continues, "...and are justified by His grace as a gift." He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now, this paragraph and the one that proceeds next week arguably are the most important paragraphs in the entire Bible. And there's a lot of things in there that we need to unpack. And maybe I need to spend more time than just today and just next Sunday. Maybe we need to come back and, and learn what some of these really deep doctrinal terms are. So let's just submit that to the Lord and ask for His wisdom. But here we go. What is justification? It's a hugely important term. And on hugely important terms, I refer to men like R.C. Sproul, who says, Justification is not an act of divine pardon. Now, that may, you may, that, that may be how you think about it. it. It's like being pardoned. In fact, there's probably hymns with that word in it. I think there is. I just can't recall it. But it's not a divine pardon. In a pardon, a guilty person is released from the consequences of their crime or of their sin. They are released from it. They, they don't have to pay the penalty of it. However, Sproul says that in justification, God makes a legal declaration. It's an act whereby God declares a person to be just. Justification is the act by which God judiciously declares a person to be righteous in His sight. So in justification, it is not simply that God chooses not to punish us for our sin. And this is important. Instead, He treats you, you ready? As if you've never sinned in the first place. When the President of the United States or a governor pardons a person, 
They don't deny that the crime was committed. They just say, it's within my power, I'm going to choose to let you escape the punishment of that crime. In justification, God is saying, God is treating you as if you never committed the sin anyway. It is a legal declaration that you, sinner, are righteous. Justification is being declared righteous. Now, you may be wondering, how is it possible that God would look upon a person who has sinned grievously and declare that person to be just, to be holy, to be righteous, to be right with God? How is that possible? Paul tells us that we are justified by His grace through faith. So this is how we receive God's righteousness. That's how we receive God's justification. It's given as a gift from God because faith is not a work. And and this is another important distinction because I I think that there are well-meaning Christians who in their minds imagine that because they have come to believe in Jesus Christ, that they have earned His favor. But your faith is not a work. It's simply the means by which the Father declares you to be righteous. It is a gift of His grace wholly and completely undeserved by you. Faith is the simple act of trusting in Jesus. Faith is the simple act of trusting in Jesus. Faith is trusting that you have nothing to offer God that would cause Him to deal favorably with you. There's nothing that you bring to the table, including your willingness to believe. You have nothing to bring to the table that would cause God to deal favorably with you, but Jesus does. And faith is simply accepting the gift for what it is. Your sin debt, what you have accumulated by your myriad sins from birth and up to this very moment, are transferred unto Jesus. Your sins are exchanged for His righteousness. Your sins are placed upon Jesus, and He dies for your sin. And by faith, He gives you His righteousness. You're covered from head to toe in the righteousness of Christ. That is how the righteousness of God is manifest in the world. You, sinner, 
are covered, or in Sproul's words, cloaked. I like cloaked. You're cloaked in Christ's righteousness always and forever. That is so much more than a pardon, wouldn't you say? A pardon is saying, yep, you sinned. I'm not going to punish you for your sin, but come on in, you wretched, filthy sinner. No. God says, I'm making you holy just like my son. I'm going to cover you with his righteousness. We are justified through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So salvation is being brought back, being bought back, I should say. Uh, redemption cost Jesus. There was, a, there was a price to be paid. It's not a price that you could ever pay, but the price was paid by Jesus. It's redemption. It's being bought back. It cost Jesus his life. In Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says that he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I think we understand what a ransom is, right? It, it, it's the exchange of money to purchase someone's freedom. Someone who is otherwise unable to secure their own freedom, the, the money from a third party is paid in order to secure freedom from that captivity. What a beautiful picture of salvation. You were enslaved to sin. You were in bondage to sin. And Jesus, with the precious blood of our Savior, bought your salvation, bought your redemption, and transfers to you His righteousness. Paul says that God put Jesus forward as propitiation by His blood. As far back as Genesis chapter 3, and all through the Old Testament, it becomes clear that something must die for sin to be atoned for. Blood must be spilled for sin to be atoned for. In Genesis 3, we see the first animal sacrifice whereby God slays an animal and takes the skin and covers over Adam and Eve's shame and nakedness. An animal died in order to cover the sin and shame of Adam and Eve. And that was the first of many blood sacrifices required to atone for sin. Moses, God speaks through Moses in Leviticus chapter 17, saying, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you, I've, excuse me, I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Once again, Peter tells us that we are ransomed not by silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Christ. Now, it's interesting to note that God put Jesus forward as a propitiation. God is the offended party, right? It's not that God has offended us and somehow wants to make amends and, and extend a peace offering. No, we have sinned against Him, and 
we have offended him, and yet he is the one who initiates our redemption. Both in Genesis 3 and in Christ. God is the one who takes the first step. Now, propitiation. That's a legal term. It means to legally satisfy the demands of justice. It means to fulfill the requirement necessary to turn away God's wrath. Something had to die in order to turn away God's wrath for sinners. And Jesus Christ was that propitiation. He became our substitute. He died in our place. Now, how do you receive the benefit of that shed blood? That's the question. Is Jesus' blood still shed today? No. Praise the Lord. There was one sacrifice 2,000 years ago, the final sacrifice, the final blood shed for the atoning of sin. How do we receive the benefit of Christ's shed blood? Paul tells us this is to be received by faith. So whoever comes to an end of themselves and recognizes their inability to save themselves, their inability to earn, receives as a gift Christ's propitiation on their behalf. This is why the self-righteous have such a hard time with this. Because what they want to do is they want to receive some kind of credit. Even if it's only my faith, I have done something to earn... I've done something to step toward God. But salvation comes to those who recognize that you have nothing to offer. And you receive the free gift for what it is. Verse 25 continues, This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. The story of redemption... Jesus stepping into flesh and taking upon Himself the wrath of God that was due to us demonstrates to us the righteousness of God. It it, it shows God's righteousness. How how is God's righteousness manifest on the earth? It is not by a bunch of people who have achieved perfection and have lived up to God's holy standard, but rather it is His Son who was offered as a propitiation on our behalf. In God's divine forbearance, which is another way of saying great patience, Paul says he had passed over former sins. To state that simply, God waits patiently and continues to wait. He has waited for 2,000 years. He has waited for 6,000 years. He will wait for an untold number of days or minutes or years or millennia, we don't know, but He waits patiently in order to give us the opportunity to repent. To arrive at that place like David, who says, against you only have I sent. Today you're here. I don't know where you are with the Lord. I don't know, I don't know what you trust in for righteousness, for goodness, for worthiness, 
for value. I don't know what you think you will stand on when you meet the Father face to face. But if it's not Jesus, don't presume upon His patience any longer. Come now to a place of repentance. In His divine forbearance, He has passed over former sins. Verse 26 continues. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This great redemption bought by the blood of Christ shows us how God masterfully deals with the problem of sin and His desire to save. Something that we, would never, we could never make this up. But God deals masterfully with the desire to save and our depravity. By putting forth His Son as a propitiation by the blood, God is able to be both just, in other words, He is able to be a good, righteous, holy judge, and the justifier of sinners. He is able to hold accountable and acquit, to both execute and exonerate. And all of this is a gift of God's grace given to those who by faith believe. I love F.F. Bruce's definition of faith. He says, faith is that simple and open-hearted attitude to God which takes Him at His word and gratefully accepts His grace. Question for you this morning, do you take God at His word? You think, well, maybe that's too easy. That's why it's called the good news. Now, it costs you nothing to receive salvation, but Jesus demands everything of his followers. You can't pay your, you can't pay your way into heaven, but you can sure invest in it. A few things that I want to leave you with this morning the first is the seriousness of sin. The seriousness of sin. Do you know that God hates sin? I, I was reading Matthew Henry's commentary, and he says, it appears that God hates sin. <laughs> Understated a little bit. It appears that God hates sin, that he would pour out his full cup of wrath upon his one and only beloved son. Do you hate sin? I'm not talking about other people's sin. It's easy to hate everyone else's sin. My question is, do you hate your sin? Does it rise to this level? Do, do you understand the seriousness of sin that a holy God would pour out the full cup of His wrath, not sparing an ounce of it, on the God-man, Jesus Christ? That God hates sin so much that He would crush His own Son? Does your hatred of sin display how serious you take it? Do you have a serious view of sin? Is it like a prowling lion or more like a cuddly kitten? 
I said before that the object here is not perfection. We're never going to be perfect, but rather that you and I come to hate our sin. In this life, you and I will never be perfect, but we don't have to get cozy with it. We don't have to get comfortable and settle into our sin and think, oh, well, you know, I'm never going to be perfect. And so these things that clearly violate God's holy standard, I'm okay with these things. Sin is so serious in God's eyes that He crushed His Son to death. I wonder if it's so serious to you. Number two, the justice of God. To declare that you and I are righteous based solely upon faith in Christ is an act of divine justice. Not simply benevolence. God is right and just to declare you righteous by faith in His Son because all of His wrath was poured out upon Christ. All of it. It would be profoundly unjust for God to begin you in righteousness and say, okay, I declare you righteous. You have faith in Christ. Now you go and maintain your righteousness. And if you lose your righteousness, then I will no longer consider you righteous. That would be profoundly unjust. And the reality is that I don't know everything about you, but I know that you've sinned today already. And if you could lose your righteousness, you already would have this morning. It is just for God to not only declare us righteous, but to keep on declaring us righteous. Always and forever. Amen? Third and finally, the supremacy of the gospel. Of all things that you and I could ever live for and give our time, talents, and treasure to, the gospel is the greatest. Do you believe that? Of, of all the ventures and opportunities that you and I could invest our skills and our time and our energy and our money into, the greatest is the gospel. It surpasses material prosperity and personal achievement. It is greater than family. It is more significant than life. Now, why do I say these things? Because Jesus says that if you want to follow him, you have to hold on to these loosely and be willing to lose them. Church, this is our mission. This is why we exist. You understand? We exist to proclaim to the world that Jesus saves sinners. We exist to proclaim in the quad cities and around the world the gospel of redemption that God declares the unrighteous righteous and clothes them in the righteousness of Jesus. That's why we exist. And I'm not talking about why we, the staff and the elders, exist. Congregation, that's why we exist. That is your purpose in life. 
That is why you were born and why you were saved and why you still breathe today to declare the best news ever spoken that Jesus saves sinners. Jesus tells us, seek first the kingdom of God, first in priority. Everything else is subordinate to that. All the provision, all the basic necessities of life come subordinate to seeking first the kingdom of God. He says, go into all the nations and make disciples. You and I have the same mission. You may not conceive of it that way. But you and I have the same mission. To proclaim to the world, Jesus Christ saves sinners. Everything in your life revolves around the greatest reality in life, that you were a sinner who was saved by grace through faith, and you have been set on mission with other people just like you to go out and to find more sinners and declare to them that they can be saved by grace through faith. And to give up everything and to be spent by Jesus if He so chooses to use you that way. I want you to look around you. I want you to see that God is doing incredible things in the Quad Cities through Wildwood Church. It is a privilege for us to be used by the Lord in gospel ministry. This year, our congregation is sending out 60 short-term missionaries on four different mission trips to Galveston, Texas, to Haiti, and to Kenya. Folks, that is more than Wildwood has ever sent out on mission. 60 of our people have said, yes, we will, we will lay it on the line, we will, we will hop on a plane, we will go where the Lord wants us to go, and we will take the gospel of Jesus Christ there. It may not be true this morning because of the snow, but the staff recognizes that we are quickly maximizing our space. We're having to think through how do we, how do we accommodate for growth within this church. We're watching men and women come to know Jesus, to be set free from their sins, and then they're bringing their friends who need to be set free, and they're coming to know Jesus. That's happening all around us, and we cannot take that for granted. You know that this doesn't happen in every church. God is at work in our church, and there's lots of work to be done. This church is on mission. You saw how many leaders it takes to do the work, and I can promise you that second service will be more full because many of those that are leading in our church are doing so right now downstairs. You see how many people it takes to lead the church. There is lots of work to be done. The, the pastoral staff is, is, is experiencing the pains of growth as we, as we wrestle with the tyranny of the urgent, and we, we have to meet the deadlines. We have to do the things, but we want to be ministering to the people. We want to be shepherding and loving the people. And so the elders are considering how to best support the staff and how to posture ourselves for growth and how to accommodate for the growth that the Lord has already given to us. 
There's lots of work to be done. We're a church on mission. You are on mission. Whether you have embraced the mission or not, you are on mission. Do you remember the, the, the tug rope that I had up here months ago? And you had little George over here, five-year-old George standing over here by himself, and big old Josh over here. And no matter how hard George pulled against Josh, there was no way that George was going to move him. What we did was we invited more people to put their hands on the rope and pull in the same direction. And when that happened, well, we didn't let it happen because I was afraid that people were going to try to get a revenge on Josh or something. I, I could see it in their eyes as they jumped up on stage. My point is, folks, God is doing incredible work in and through our church. There's a lot of work to be done. We need volunteers. Almost every, volu- almost every ministry would say, I could use volunteers. It takes resources to run a church, to do effective ministry. And I want you to know that when I'm thinking about this, when I'm conceiving of this, there are plenty of faithful people who are serving and giving, and they're pulling as hard as they can. And I want to reiterate, we're not asking you to pull harder. What we're asking is that there be more people that place their hands on the rope and would say the mission of Wildwood Church, the mission of Jesus Christ as assigned to Wildwood Church is a noble and right and worthy mission. And as the recipient of God's amazing grace and salvation, I'm going to put my hands to the rope and I'm going to pull in the same direction. My question to you is, is the gospel of Jesus Christ supreme in your life? Is it the thing around which your entire life revolves? As we transition to communion, I want you to examine yourself because Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11, calls us to do that, calls us to check our hearts. And, and, and communion is about us. It's about a body saying, we have been brought together by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why it's called communion. And Paul chastises the Corinthians because they failed to take seriously the call of Christ on their lives as a church. And they would rush to get to the to the church early to get the best bread and the best wine. And they were indifferent of the other people with, with which or to whom Jesus had knit them together in a body. My question for you is, as you conceive of your walk with Christ, is there room for the corporate body and for the mission of this church? Or is it simply, what do I get out of it individually? If it's that, you fail to recognize the body. And I want you to check your heart. Paul tells us to examine ourselves. And so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. 
Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you for our redemption. So great a salvation. I pray, Lord, that you be glorified in our church. We're a church on mission. We're trying to be faithful. We're trying to do your work, and you're blessing us, and you're sending people that need to hear the gospel, and we're sending people out with the gospel. But I pray, Lord, that you continue to bless, continue to guide, continue to inspire. I pray for more hands on the rope. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.